Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Now, what we do at Stand Up Tragedy is we invite people to come and stand up on our stage and do some tragedy. So we invite people from all over the arts. We get storytellers, comedians, spoken word artists, musicians and more and get them to show us what tragedy means to them. So I don't know what they're going to do, uh, but it's going to be what tragedy is in their opinion. Uh, so, yeah. So basically, when you're walking down the street, right, uh, tragedy could happen to you at any time. You could get hit by a car, you could get uh, struck by lightning, you could trip over and hurt your knee, whatever tragedy is to you, but it, it would be a surprise. We shouldn't be surprised to see tragedy in this room. We know it's going to happen. It's happening here on stage. Expect some tragedy. Tragedy means sad things, sad kind of themes. I th I'm sure we can all have an idea of what that can mean. It can get dark, but there'll be plenty of light as well, hopefully, because what we like to do at Stand Up Tragedy is cry until we laugh and laugh until we cry and create a safe space to talk about unsafe things so yes um so now we're going to do a bit of uh, sad min everybody i'm sorry about that but then we'll get through it together and then we'll get some proper acts that are really interesting and not just me telling you stuff so yes um we're here for the rest of the festival so that's till sunday at 7 30 in here every night different lineup so if you love what you see today come back then you might hate it uh, or uh, if you hate what you see today come back then you might love it uh, we've got uh, some guest hosts uh, doing some shows we've got lucy ayrton uh, doing her, her lineup guest hosting and curating tomorrow and we've got uh, Louise Fazakali doing that on Saturday night so we've got two people who are not me so if you hate me come back on those nights and, and you'll see something better um, right so yeah talking about me I'm also doing a solo show at 12.05 at the Cabaret Voltaire um, I'm doing that tomorrow and Saturday and I'm actually doing an extra show tomorrow at 5.05 if 12.05 if, uh, in the uh, kind of early morning by Edinburgh time um, is, is, is too early for you come at 5.05 in the afternoon tomorrow and see what about the men mansplaining masculinity which if you think things are tragic in this room tonight that's going to be really tragic like you know uh, so don't come expecting a comedy it is not a comedy whatever the v venue has uh, built it as um, but it is but it is um, a serious show about uh, what uh, society does to men and what men do to people as a result of society it's been getting some really uh, she's got it's got two four star reviews and it's had uh, some really, really great responses from people. Lots of men crying and not, be not being ashamed of crying, which is fucking great. Um, yes, so uh, come to see that. Um, I, I, I kind of feel passionately about it, so I'd really like you to do that and tell people about it. But at the same time, you haven't seen it yet, so you don't care about the, all of these words that are coming out of my mouth now. So yeah, there we go. That's the thing. Uh, here we are on the PBH Free Fringe, uh, which means it's free to come in, uh, and that's absolutely fine, and it's free to leave as well, thankfully. Um, but um, it is um, what, how the free fringe works is that, you know, if you want to pay some money, if you can pay some money at the end to support us, uh, that would be great. Now, we're living in some pretty tragic times, I think. Uh, in a, as a society, we've got five more years at least of tragedy. And during that time, uh, people are going to be hard up. I'm very hard up. I'm sure lots of you are very hard up. If you're hard up, don't put any money in the, at the end. Just be, be, be thankful to us and say you liked it if you did and uh, tweet about it and get people in. But if you, if you, uh, if you can, 
can give, this is the time to give. During these five years, if you can, if you've got the money to give, you should give to the arts and to all of the rest of the things that are being snipped, snipped, snipped away. And uh, speaking of which, a couple of years ago, my job that I had working with children under fives got snipped, snipped, snipped away. And so uh, if you want even more emotional blackmail to give some money, uh, my rent would be good to pay next month. So uh, yeah, uh, you could consider giving money to me or to the arts, either way, whatever moves you. So yes, um, so uh, the, the sad min is nearly over. We're on Facebook where you can make friends with a tragedy. I'm sure we'll all agree that's the best thing to do with tragedy when it comes into your life. Uh, and we can, you can follow the tragedy if you really love tragedy on Twitter at Stand Up For Tragedy. And if you want to talk about uh, the show on Twitter, it's hashtag tragic moments. OK, so without further ado, we're going to welcome up our first performer of the night. Uh, she is uh, not doing anything particularly in Edinburgh apart from uh, she is hosting tomorrow's Stand Up Tragedy. Put your hands together, everyone, for Lucy Ayrton! Hello. It's very bright. Um, I've been I've been taking a little holiday um, from performing for um, sort of six months. Um, I say holiday. I've been working on a novel. Arguably one of the most tragic activities one can do. Um, I actually finished the first draft yesterday. Yes, yes. I'm so pleased I've got a gig to tell that to. And immediately started knitting my first jumper because I am a horrendous masochist. Um, <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, it's lovely to be back. I have two poems for you this evening. One of love, one of hate, one of tragedy, one of comedy, one of courtly romance, one of tea. Um. <laughs> oh, thanks, Dad, for the heckle. Um. <laughs> um. <laughs> Only my, my poetry encompasses um, a world of emotion. I'm going to start, obviously, with the shallow one. Um, so when I was a little girl, I always thought that I'd grow up into a kind of like pirate ninja badass, the kind of person who would genuinely wear these boots all the time. Um, um, but what happened is I grew up and I got a job in communications and I turned into one of these people who doesn't want to make a big thing out of it. But actually, if you don't get your quarterly reports in, it makes it really difficult for me to compile the sales figures. So. Um, I wrote this poem for a woman who I work with who does not get the quarterly reports in in a timely manner and actually makes it really difficult to compile the sales figures. It's called Nemesis. <laughs> when I make cups of tea, you will not get your own tea bag. You will get my second-hand tea bag. So your tea will contain almost no caffeine because I will have taken it. And I will deliberately overbrew your second-hand tea so that it is dark and unpleasantly tanniny. <laughs> Seeing you wince as you sip fizzes me with pleasure as I drink my perfectly adequate cup of tea. One day, I'll overhear you and your team arguing about whose turn it is to make the tea. Oh, don't ask Lucy, you will say. She is so bad at making tea. Your team will all shake their heads at you. They will think less of you for your meanness because everybody knows that I make perfectly adequate cups of tea. <laughs> Up yours, nemesis! I will shout. 
very loudly in my head. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I'm going to do an old one now um, from a show I did a couple of years ago called Lullabies to Make Your Children Cry. Um, I, I, um, I sent it to be reviewed by a friend of mine who actually has children, and they said, Mummy, why does your friend hate us? Which is, to this day, awkward at barbecues. Um, so, yeah, like... <laughs> sorry, Tegan. Um, uh, anyway, this, um, this poem is um, based on an old story, a Breton lay. Um, so it's a very old story, sung by the troubadours of France, but unlike most of the surviving literature from the time this one was written by a woman, and I like to think that, um, I like to think that we tell stories because we want to pass on useful information, we want to pass on warnings and lessons, and I think that this is um, yeah, what Marie de France wanted to say. Um, it's called The Nightingale. I'm going to ostentatiously read it out of this delightfully produced poetry pamphlet so that everybody knows that I have delightfully produced poetry pamphlets that are available to buy. Uh, bearing in mind what Dave was saying about supporting the arts after the show, come and find me only £4. Make a really good present for someone you don't care that much about. Anyway, <laughs> this is The Nightingale. There was once a little girl, or not a girl, a lady, and when she reached a certain age, she... Her father gave her to marry. And the night was nice enough, you know, all right, but not really the kind to make the middle of the night bright for her, not really right for her, just okay. Not long after her wedding day, the lady let her husband stay in bed while she fled out to the balcony to watch the sun set, and it was there she met with the other night. And she knew straight off the night next door was the one that she was looking for. This night was unlike anyone that she had ever met before. Her feelings were so clear that they were written out in semaphore. They could leave her breathless with a head tilt and a metaphor. She knew for sure this was it. I'd let you spread your wings. I'd end your suffering. I'd give you anything I'd sing until your very last breath stopped. But these two balconies they stood on, they didn't touch. There was just a little bit too much space between them for a handhold or a kiss. They were about this, far apart. Close enough to throw a gift to, she was still too far from the other night's heart. So they started the sweetest affair. Her here, them there, both of them aware of her husband. And the nights grew warmer and the days grew sweeter and her love would meet her every night. And she'd gaze at the maze of her night's face in the moonlight and dream of a time when her love could hold her tight. I'd let you spread your wings, I'd end your suffering. I'd give you anything I'd sing until my very last breath stopped. But as the summer came to bloom, the brightness of the moon fell on her husband's face and he woke and realized his lady wasn't in her place. He saw the empty pillow still pressed into the shape of her head and strewn with the long loose hair she'd shed highlighted by a moonbeam. The worst sight he'd ever seen. When she came back to bed, he said to her, where were you even though he knew? and his heart split into two bits, but what could he do? 
She said, there was a nightingale, darling, out on the balcony. Can't you see? But he couldn't. She said, he's so near. Can't you hear? Can't you hear him sing? I'll let you spread your wings. I'll end your suffering. I'll give you anything. I'll sing until my very last breath stops. And he said, no, I can't. And he rolled over, but he didn't sleep. Every night that week, he lay awake for the sake of his wife and hearing the words she spake to the other night, but they didn't know. So she'd still go out into the dark to tend to the spark of her new love, and there was whispering and laughing and throwing kisses, and neither of them knew that these weren't just near misses, that they were caught. One day, the lady was sitting all sweet with her needlework when her husband stepped in with a smile and a bird in his hand, and because she didn't know what he had planned, she said, darling, for me, and he said, yes, my dear, want to see? And he opened his hand up just enough for a nightingale's head to pop out and sing. I'll let you spread your wings. I'll end your suffering. I'll give you anything. I'll sing until my very last breath stops. And the lady, all guilt and happiness, reached out and ran her fingers along the bird's breast, but he pressed his fingers into the creature's neck. And the lady prayed he'd let the nightingale go, but no. He snapped its neck. And he looked at his lady and said, what did you expect? Do you think I'd let anything get between my lady and her good night's good night's sleep? And as he threw the bird down and left the chamber, she began to weep. She knew she had to keep away from her love. From then on, she knew the next time would be her neck, or worse. So she sewed her story into the cloth she was holding in tear-glittered gold thread and at the end a warning. No more meeting, or we're both dead. That night, she took the bird out to the balcony and threw it over to the place she knew her knight would be and left. So she didn't have to see them open it. So she didn't have to see them for a last time. The night, that night, came out, looked across from the balcony and then down. Frowning, they picked up the package, opened it and read the shroud and for an hour after, carried the bird around very, very gently. Eventually, they had it locked up in a tiny golden coffin and tied it on their armor as a reminder that love is always beautiful even when it's dead. As a reminder of the time the nightingale said, I'll let you spread your wings, I'll end your suffering, I'll give you anything, I'll sing, until my very last breath stops. I'll let you spread your wings, I'll end your suffering, I'll give you anything, I'll sing until my very last breath. Thank you. Lucy Ayrton, everybody. Way, okay. Right. Uh, so uh, it, it's interesting now, it's exciting now because the, uh, the person who's keeping the time had to run out and cough a lot and she's not here. So it's gonna get exciting now, it's gonna go rogue. Okay.
well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I think it'll be fine. Yeah, it looks like somebody else is uh, on the case. Right, so brilliant. So our next uh, performer, she's doing a show called Sick Girl uh, at uh, Laughing Horse at the Counting House at 12.05. It competes with my show, but I've heard really good things about it. So Sophie's choice for you guys. Um, but yeah, okay. Um, so yeah, put your hands together, everyone, for Mel Moon! Oh, yeah, thank you, I am short. Thanks for the reminder. Good evening. Um, before we start, uh, let's get the elephant out of the room, shall we? Get out. <laughs> no kidding. Um, I, can I just say, uh, that blew me away, didn't it? I thought it was absolutely beautiful. And I've never been to the whole spoken word thing before. I'm going to give it a go now, because that was shit hot, no messing. I'm northern, I can't critique, right? <laughs> It were well good. <laughs> right. I tried middle class, it's just not for me. Um, okay, so you're probably looking at me now thinking, oh my God, what is that she's wearing round her neck? Is she wearing it so we feel sorry for her? Is she wearing it so we laugh more at her jokes? Yes, both those things. <laughs> but ultimately, guys, it's just a necklace. <laughs> Got it from a charity shop, really like it. So, And this, well, this I wear because in 2013, I was diagnosed with a very rare endocrine disorder affecting less than one in two million that could kill me any minute, anywhere, any day. So we get through the show the way, shall we? Shall we try that? <laughs> yeah. um, uh, we don't think it's contagious. Uh, I'll be honest, emphasis on the word think there. Um, you know, sharing the mic and everything. You take your chances. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's a really weird disease in that stress can kill me. Now we all know, don't we, that stress can kill anyone really, can't it? High blood pressure, heart attack, stroke. We know these things now in the today's modern world. But for me, it would be a much more primary reaction. I'll give you an example. A physical stress, like a tummy bug, something like that, that would cause my body to shut down and die. Or an emotional stress, like grief or an argument would also cause my body to shut down and die. And that sounds horrible, doesn't it? Found a way to milk it, though. <laughs> Do you want to know? Okay. So this might happen at my house. Just might. Yes, Chris, my partner. I did call you a wanker for not taking the bins out. What are you going to do about it? Argue with me. <laughs> well, yeah, I think I might actually, Mel. <laughs> Shit. Um, okay. Well, then you can tell the kids why you killed their mother. <laughs> we did find out very quickly into my diagnosis that an emergency injection given at the right time would stop the death. So sometimes he'll get a needle out and go, we're having that row, love. <laughs> I don't like those days. I don't like those days at all. Um, it's weird, my disease. I'm going to be honest with you. My show is called Sick Girl, and it's about more than the fact I'm sick. It's about that at some point the disease got so much that I decided to become the youngest member of an organisation called Exit International that helps the very sick to die. Shut you up, didn't it? <laughs> do you want to know why? Well, the truth is when Breaking Bad finished, there was fuck all else to do, mate, so... <laughs> I thought, let's get out early, eh? <laughs> Glad I didn't, though, because Better Call Saul's pretty damn good, isn't it? <laughs> um, so, yeah, th that, that did happen, and that is truthful. And uh, y when you find out something like that, when someone sits you down and tells you you've got a disease that there is no cure for, there's nothing they can do, your world <laughs> shatters not least because it physically hurts and you're exhausted and you just want an end think about it when you have a headache you take a pain pill right 
You don't want the headache to stay. That's crazy. So it seemed perfectly normal for me after three years of, of living that way, stuck in bed in agony, to want to end it. And I contacted Dignitas first. Have you heard of them? Yeah, they're an organization where you go to Switzerland, it's very clinical, you get a little drink and you get your peaceful end. Uh, it turns out to do that, it costs 10 grand. <laughs> no one would lend it me. <laughs> um, you know, what do you want it for? <laughs> Fancy getting away for a bit. <laughs> when will I get it back? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that was tricky. And then I moved on from there and I found Exit very different in their approach. So you don't go anywhere with Exit, you join to really get access to their Peaceful Pill Handbook, which tells you everything you need to know to die peacefully at home, surrounded by people that you love and care about, which I think is a right that should be given to everybody. That's my personal opinion. Don't worry, though, I'm not about to get all political or anything. I'm the least political person in this room, in the planet, in fact. <laughs> two weeks ago, I thought coalition was something that happened when two cars crashed on a motorway. And that dossier was a French word for sky school. So, you know, <laughs> I, I, that is what you get with me. It's, it's terrible, I know. But Exit, I felt, were quite aggressive in their advertising. Because you think about it. How many rooms have you been in this week with a green Exit sign? <laughs> Just saying. You know? And in my hospital, there's an emergency exit for people so fucked they don't have to do the paperwork. They just get to go. They just get to go. And so I joined. And it was so strange because... I joined for a bigger reason than just me. I'm a mum. And you heard that right, I have children. And that may evoke very strong reactions from some of you. Because having children is a huge responsibility. I love my kids. I have two, they're 10 and four. Best little kids in the world, both boys. Uh, they're not here today, they're at home on their own. Because <laughs> the way I see it, if you can use a PlayStation, which is pretty damn complicated, you can dial 999, can't you? <laughs> So let's be real here. <laughs> but everything that I was feeling, they were feeling. Every pain I felt physically, they felt here. And do you know what? You have children, you make a promise that you'll be there to look after them for the rest of your life. Make sure they're never fearful of anything, that they don't want for anything. What happens when you're the thing they're scared of? Then what? What happens when your 10 year old says to you before he goes to bed, mommy, I don't wanna go to sleep because I'm so frightened you'll die. When you've made a promise, you will never lie to your children. What do you do? And I was very lucky in that my dad, when I was a little girl, I had the same dream about him. And he told me that if you dream that someone's gonna die, it's okay. It just means you're gonna get closer to that person. So I was able to tell my 10-year-old that, which is a good thing to do. And I wasn't selfish. I wanted them to have a childhood. And the way I saw it is every single day they spent worrying that I was gonna die was one single day they didn't get to have one. So in my head, you rip off the band-aid and it hurts like fuck. But eventually they get to play again and they will play again. And that's why I did what I did. And you're really getting a condensed version here, ladies and gentlemen, I can feel the judgment. <laughs> <laughs> Do I get security on the way out? Just checking. <laughs> I'll let you into a little secret about my kids, though, um, and there's more judgment here. I'm from Burnley. Has anyone ever been to Burnley? Have you been? Poor cow. Did you? Actually, you've got my sympathies, love. Never mind who <laughs> <laughs> Beverly. You can't take it back now. You've said it. Hold. <laughs> I like Beverly. My mum's been friends with her for years. Um, <laughs> sorry, I won't do that again. It's a terrible joke. <laughs> All right. All right. 
Uh, I, I like this little about my kids, right? Don't have the same dad. <gasps> I know from Burnley as well. Who fucking knew? <laughs> and uh, yeah, they don't have the same dad. Uh, I had the first child, didn't work out, but I'm traditional, so I gave him his surname. Then I met someone else. He didn't marry me either. I'm starting to see a pattern here. And I gave him his surname. Not only don't they have the same surname as each other, they don't have a surname I make, keep up. But then I thought about it. They're from Burnley. They will get Asbos. <laughs> and when their names are printed in the paper, neither one of those shits can be traced back to me. <laughs> but you know what I do? I teach my kids something very special that I want to teach you tonight. They don't know that their mum is sick. They have no idea. Why would I do that to them? Why would I place that kind of albatross around their neck so they four in ten? They think, and I'm quite happy for them to think this, that I'm lazy. <laughs> Mummy, why do you need so much sleep? I just like to sleep, Brace. But you say when I need sleep, I'm lazy. Get to your room, reach your grounded. That's how it goes. <laughs> but what I do teach them is to be brave. And what I also teach them is life is very, very short. Because you don't know what's around the corner there, but for the grace of God, go you, right? right. Three years ago, I was a healthy girl with absolutely nothing to worry about but a mortgage payment. Now look at me. I'm in a dream. <laughs> so, what I want to do We wait for one day to make promises to ourselves that we we'll never keep. What day is that? Tuesday. I'm going to leave you on a high, ladies and gentlemen. Chris will be giving out five hundred grams of folly on my next sip. <laughs> but what makes you think you're going to get one? You've only got now. And as far as I'm concerned, it is exactly twelve months since the twenty-eighth of August, two thousand and fourteen. Am I right? So isn't today your new year? So I'm going to count down from ten. When we get to one, we're going to let go of our party tops. And instead of Happy New Year, the year's irrelevant. You're going to say Happy New Year because that's what it's about. You. You ready? You come with me. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five. shit in an emergency, wouldn't you? <laughs> the fact is, you don't know when you're going to drop. So don't count. Pop immediately, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Mel Moon, everybody! <laughs> the smell of sulphur is in the air. There must be tragedy happening today. Oh, yes, I... I should have said earlier on as well, we are a podcast as well as a live show. So if you want to listen back to today's show or you want to listen back to any of the shows that we've done in Edinburgh, they are all out there online on iTunes or anywhere else that podcasts go out uh, to hang out on the internet. Right. After that sparkling bit of uh, engaging speech uh, of uh, so a little bit of extra sadmin, let's let's get it a bit more lively as we welcome our next performer. He is doing he is hosting a spark, uh, op a true story open mic at 145 every day until the 29th uh, the Cowgate head up to S. Put your hands together everyone for Ian Barrett! Yeah. 
Good evening. So I've got a story of different layers of tragedy. I'll let you decide where the tragedy is. I might give you some hints later on in case it's not clear. It might become very clear, actually. Start off with, I am 51. I was 51 last week. That's not the tragedy. <laughs> Thank you. Um, now, when I was, uh, when I was young, uh, I started off reading voraciously as soon as I could read, grabbing all the books I could. Um, and I was reading those things, any Blyton, if anyone's from that sort of era, um, books for, for kids. Um, and one, I don't know if it was a birthday, this book dropped into my life. It was a Doctor Who book. All familiar with Doctor Who here? Yeah. Most important, important cultural phenomenon, perhaps, ever. And, and this book changed my life. This book was amazing. It opened up huge worlds in my imagination. At that point, I, I hadn't seen the program, but this book was incredible. It's Doctor Who and the Demons, in case you want to know. And uh, I, I think I read two or three before I actually got to, uh, to see the show. Um, and by that time, my head was full of all these worlds, all this time travel and science fiction that was all new to me. Uh, and when the, the show started uh, for the new season, uh, for some reason, I didn't see it until the um, until fourth episode in. And you remember the uh, January 22nd, 1971. Uh, it was the final episode in Doctor Who and the Day of the Daleks. You remember that one? <laughs> no? Wrong crowd. <laughs> okay. Um, it's, it's the, the Daleks come back in time to make the version of history that, that, that they want in the future. It's like a time paradox. No? <laughs> Do you, want, do you want more of the plot? I'll leave it there. Okay, it's this. <laughs> John Pertwee, come on, guys. <laughs> this was so much better at Comic-Con, I'll tell you. <laughs> so uh, I, I remember that uh, there were Daleks and there were these creatures called Ograns, Ogrons, strange Neanderthal-type creatures striding across some, some lawn. It was all quite cheap. There were six Ogrons. Every uh, Doctor Who uh, adventure of that era had six of everything. They thought six was the number that was scary and probably that was the amount they could afford to make of any of these <laughs> monsters. Um, and, and if you do look at that, you can just count all the different uh, creatures. It was filmed from different angles, so it did look amazing. But to my, to my seven-year-old mind, it was just incredible. I didn't really understand what the hell was going on, but I knew I liked it. It's a bit like sex, really, when you start doing that. So uh, I, I became a huge fan. This, this, this uh, program filled my life in my early years, and I collected more and more books. I obviously was, uh, made sure I, I saw the, the show every um, Saturday when it, uh, when it was on. I had some friends who were similarly devoted to the program. And this is an era, again, there's some more youthful faces here, when there were no videos, never mind DVDs. There weren't videos that you could go and get. There were just the books. These books were quite precious. Uh, me and a few friends, we used to gather together. We had all the books, and we used to bring them all to someone's house and then just lay them out on the floor. I don't know why, there's nothing else we could do. That was, that was it, that was the extent of, of what we could actually do with Doctor Who at that time. That's not tragic, that's fine, that's just lovely, we were kids. <laughs> went to, there was an exhibition at Blackpool, I remember, we went on a big trip, a day trip, and uh, saw some costumes, it was, it was great. Anyway, as I got into my teenage years, um, uh, life changed a bit. Uh, like, I, like any teenager, you devote more time to chess, I was getting quite good at chess. Um, <laughs> 
And uh, there was like exams, there were girls, which was some vague distant thing. I was at boys' school, but I'm uh, sort of 14, 15, um, I wasn't watching quite as much. And then um, as I went to college, uh, even less so. And let's face it, in the, end, in the 80s, it became a bit like a pantomime. Um, the, the show returned in 2005. So um, I was excited that uh, the show had come back and it was almost reimagined, but I was, rather than being devoted myself, I was just happy that there were seven-year-olds, like my earlier seven-year-old, who could be similarly enthused by this program. Um, so I watched and I enjoyed it. Um, and my sister works in theatre. Um, and uh, she works in the sort of West End doing various plays. And the way the theatre tends to work is they'll have a few weeks when they'll put the production on, and then they'll have something called a press night when they get all the people in to review the show. And they'll invite as many famous people as they possibly can to the press night, and in the hope that they'll someone will trip up on the red carpet and they'll get a photo in the Daily Mirror um, and, and get some publicity for the show. So um, my sister invited me to the press night and also on the guest list was David Tennant. Does this, does this mean anything, David? <laughs> <laughs> so David Tennant, who played Doctor Who, I think he was near the end of his tenure at that point, was gonna be there. I was gonna be in the same room and uh, I would get to hang out with him all night. It was gonna be amazing. And uh, so uh, I went along to see the play and then afterwards, there's some sort of big freebie um, drink event where you can just drink as much as you want and the uh, journalists around and as many sort of famous people as they can cram in. So now at that point, this could be the tragic bit. It gets worse. Um, by that stage, I think I'm about 47 or 48, much younger than the person you see here. And yet I still really want to see David Tennant. Isn't that really sad? I can't help myself. I know I'm not quite as devoted as that seven-year-old, but it's just something inside me I can't help. I just want to go and say, hello, David Tennant. My sister, mean meanwhile, is hanging out with all the uh, people in the theatre, and apparently she's talking with David Tennant about light fittings for his new house. Isn't that dull? He's, he's a bloody time lord. He's Doctor Who, and he's <laughs> talking about light fittings with my sister. God, this is wasted. Uh, so she ushers them down towards the uh, the sort of VIP um, uh, drinks thing, the time at. And I hear, I'm there with my friend Ben, and we've had a few drinks. And I just say to Ben, I'm, I just need to go to the loo. Uh, the, all all the, uh, the names hadn't arrived by that stage. And uh, Ben just grabs me before I go into the loo, and he says, you know who's come? Just come in. David Tennant's just come in, and he's gone to the loo. Now, at this stage, I'm thinking, well, I need to go to the loo. I can't just not go to the loo because David Tennant's going down towards the loo. This is a bit weird. Maybe it's tragic. I don't know. I didn't, th I didn't think I didn't use the word tragic at that time. So uh, I want to go to the loo. And I sort of followed him. And then the corridor sort of snakes round towards where the loo is. And, and then I'm following David Tennant. And I'm thinking, what, what do I do? You know, I wanted to say hello at some point. But um, this is slightly awkward. So uh, uh, he's a little way ahead. And as I push the door to the gents open, he's there at the urinal. He, he pees just like a normal person. Can you believe that? Oh God, it's terrible. Um, and and then I'm caught in this in this dilemma. It's it's a multifaceted dilemma. So stay with me here. Um, 
generally at urinals, you don't casually chat to your um, your your um, the bloke next door. Hopefully, a bloke. Um, uh, there's like sort of a silent etiquette. It, it might vary depending on how drunk you are, or sometimes where you're on the country, or which type of pub. But in general, there's like a silent space. And I knew that I couldn't stand next to David Tennant and not say anything. That would be awful. But I couldn't say anything. I mean, the poor fellow's there peeing like a normal person. And he doesn't want someone saying, I'm like 46 or 7 or whatever I was. And I, I love your show. You can't do that. So I dived into the stall and just like, you know, bottled it. I stayed there for a couple of days. Now, <laughs> it could have been worse because, of course, like most people, my, my phone rings with the Doctor Who theme tune. Does, your, does yours do that? <laughs> And it was pointed out afterwards, it could have gone horribly wrong. I could have been silently peeing, just controlling myself, not talking to him. And my phone could have gone off. Isn't that really worse? That's, that's horrible. Poor David Tennant. And there's some guy with a Doctor Who theme tune playing next to him. It's the 1963 version of the Doctor Who theme tune, I should point out. Not the late 80s one when it was diluted and orchestrated. <laughs> that, that is important. So... So anyway, I, I, um, I didn't get a chance to speak to David Tennant, and I was in the same room as him all night and avoided the opportunity to go up and say, hello, I love your show, I'm 48, I'm not embarrassed, uh, or 46, or whatever I was. I'm far too old to be a fan now. So uh, I stand before you. I am still a tragic fan. Maybe the tragedy is that some people don't feel able to say that they're a fan of a show they loved when they were a kid. I'm still a Doctor Who fan. Thank you. Own it. Ian Barrett, everybody. Okay, our next performer, he is, uh, he's not doing a show in Edinburgh either. I mean, we, 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 we're going crazy up here today. All uh, right, uh, he is up here for the BBC Slam, uh, which he did a few days ago. We have to go, everyone, for Big Charlie Poet! Hello. Um, yeah, Jesus, that is bright. Crying out loud. I, I actually, you, you've all disappeared, which probably is a bit of a tragedy as well. Um, yeah, tragedy. I, I'm actually going to tell you a little tale, poetically, hopefully, um, uh, that's a near miss of a tragedy. Um, it came about years and years ago, and I wanted to write about the subject for a large number of years. And every time I tried to do it over the, the coming years... It always sounded a bit crap, if I'm honest. Um, until one day, my dad, who knew that I was struggling with uh, how to approach this, said to me, because he's a much smarter man than me, I've got this phrase going around in my head, and I don't know, maybe you could do something with it. And being the dutiful son that I am, I wrote it down in my little notebook, and hey, presto, the poem came out. Now, the, the problem is that the phrase that he gave me relates to marine biology specifically how pearls are formed naturally in oysters. Now, I don't know if everybody's familiar with how this works, but just in case we're not all kind of marine biology students. I know I wasn't. Um, a way, uh, the way that a pearl is formed naturally in an oyster is that an irritant of some form gets inside the shell and the oyster can't get rid of it. So the oyster coats that irritant in mucus, which dries and hardens, and this happens again and again and again until ultimately a pearl is formed, which is lovely. It does mean, however, that people are wearing as decorative jewellery what is, to all intents and purposes, oyster snot. <laughs> I I'm sorry if that ruins it for anybody, but, but there you go. Um, 
now I've kind of done the little marine biology thing, I can tell you the phrase that my dad gave me, and it became the title. It is, it's the grit that makes the pearl. Now, I should tell you this before we start. This is a topic very close to my heart. It is a tale of past events and, in turn, what they have meant to me in terms of who I am now. The words I'm speaking will hopefully show how that the title of the poem is ultimately true. So now I'm going to begin the story for you. Throughout my schooling, I was always considered tall. I did well in my lessons, though by no means all, and I would never suggest that. I don't have the goal. With a combination of my height, that when starting primary school I could already read and write, and that I never really ever put up much of a fight in my defence, meant that I became someone to tease. The kids could get a reaction from me with apparent ease, and because I always wanted to please, I kept it inside. I kept it to myself, and though I didn't know it at the time, I let it affect my mental health, despite knowing in my heart that there were a wealth of options available for me to take. So I made an error in judgment. I made a mistake that many of us still continue to make. I didn't reach out when I should have done. I let the kids carry on with their fun, thinking that when I changed school, I'd be done with having to put up with the taunts and punches that came my way and all breaks and lunches in constant demoralizing, painful bunches. I thought when I changed to this brand new school with this very visual anti-bullying rule that finally everything would be cool. But I came to quickly realize that school policy was meant for parents' eyes and was not in effect for someone of my size. So when the bullying started, I went to the teacher. I begged and I pleaded. I tried to beseech her to make use of the school's anti-bullying feature, but what I was told, what the teacher chose to say, was that help was not going to come my way. That I would have to suffer day after day, week after week, with no end in sight. That at the end of the tunnel there was no light. So, yeah, I kind of gave up the fight. Now, that's a terrible thing. 11 years old, feeling like you've been left out in the cold. Any trust you had, put on hold. Not knowing on who you could rely, when what you were told was so obviously a lie. It got to the stage that I wanted to die. Now, I'm not proud that this is the case. I could have edited this out to try and save face, but frankly, I need to give you at least a taste of what was going on at the time. That for a while I had lost my mind and had no idea as to how to find a way out of the hell that I found myself in. I genuinely thought that through suicide, I could win back some points from those who had been my tormentors throughout each school year that maybe I could make them shed just one tear in payment for all of those shed in the depths of my fear. But I was... Sorry. Sorry. Somehow... I was brought back from the brink. I got a second chance, some more time to think where I came to understand I could be a strong link. But I was lucky. The next school I went to had a teaching staff that actually knew about bullying and what to do should it appear within the student population. So when it did try to rise again, they noticed my hesitation and asked me for an explanation. The problems that I was having were dealt with fast. And my being bullied became a thing of the past. If it didn't sound so cliched American, I'd say I had a blast at that school. 
I made friends and I had fun. Things that I'd never really done when, for me, school had begun. It was at that school that I was inspired by English teachers to explore the fires of my creativity and even these poetic desires. From them, the confidence I gained helped me in numerous ways to train to put my life within a frame of reference that I could abide. Though there will always be a little part of me that is terrified of the depression I felt, I now try and keep that tucked away inside. I now try and use it as a rock upon which to stand, knowing that my life is safe within these hands, that having been through hell, I can now withstand anything that is placed in front of me. My experiences have in fact helped me to see the positives in what could most likely be a very odd and interesting life. But I'm under no illusions that it'll be free of strife. At least now though, I'm prepared to roll the dice. You see, whatever may come, I'll be prepared for it. The good, the bad, and even the utter shit. Because, well what makes a pearl? It's the grip. Big Charlie Poet, everybody. Wow. That was, that was really good. Um, if you, yeah, yeah. Right, how we feel? I told you there'd be tragic things talked about today. I don't joke about that. Um, and yeah, um, if, you, if you enjoyed that uh, material about bullying and mental health issues, come to my show at 12.05 tomorrow. Uh, there's plenty more of that. Uh, right, yeah, sorry to jump on your personal experience to promote my own personal experience. Right. Yes, it does need talking about. You are right. And uh, one of the things I'm really proud of Stand Up Tragedy is that one of the things that people do talk about on our stage is mental health issues and bereavement and all of the important stuff that we do need to look at, talk about and think about. We can't just push it down because it doesn't work. Okay, um, so yeah, from that though, I mean, remember as well, guys, it's a variety night, so don't expect, like, one of the things that happens to performers, poor things, when they get invited to this show is they have to follow very uh, dramatic things, sometimes with much lighter things. We've already had Ian take the bullet and talk about, uh, talk about uh, Doctor Who just after uh, life-threatening diseases, so we're, 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 we're ready for that kind of change, and, and feel it, feel it, the change can come, it can come at any time. So our next performer, uh, she does a really great blog called Casting Call Woe, I'm really pleased to have her back again yeah you can find her um, on twitter at pro resting put your hands together everyone for miss l hello um i will explain the name in a minute um i am an actress um don't worry i'm not one of the animal onesied buffoons singing in the round on the Royal Mile. Don't worry, don't worry. Um, I'm actually resting at the moment. Um, but to be fair, I don't really like the term resting. Um, I prefer to see it as sort of carbon offsetting Benedict Cumberbatch's career. I think that's <laughs> makes me feel a bit better about it. And uh, what I do is um, I tweet and blog anonymously about how horrible the acting industry is. Um, I do it anonymous anonymously, but I can come and do these things because Nope, you're not the wiser. Um, so, um, yeah, so um, I mainly talk about uh, awful casting calls. Now, for those of you who don't know, casting calls are what go out from filmmakers and uh, theatre makers to get their actors and uh, cast their productions. Uh, one of the first I ever received uh, read as follows. Strong, athletic, capable of withstanding adverse weather conditions, there is a sex scene and some nudity. 
Now, I was just out of drama school. This was potentially my first ever acting job. I should have been excited. I should have been a bit nervous. I should not have been imagining myself having sex in a blizzard. No one needs that. No one needs it. It went on. They smear themselves with the excrement left behind by the elk. Yeah, that was actually in the casting call. I should have known then, probably just to leave the acting industry. Um, I'll just give you a little rundown of what the actual audition entailed. Uh, there was a first one, uh, which involved me running up and down a uh, church hall in just a bikini for a solid 10 minutes. Um, I got through that stage because... I was 10 years younger and looked a lot better. Um, and then the second phase uh, involved myself and about 15 other actors taking part in a two and a half hour uh, improvised workshop, a movement workshop, where we had to pretend to be Neanderthals for a constant two and a half hours. Um, it was horrible. Um, I was dressed inappropriately because of a mix-up with my agent and I was wearing really tight jeans and it was really, really awful. And uh, there was a horrible low point where about two-thirds of the way in, we're all just scrabbling around on the floor and one of the producers shouts out that there's going to be a new thing happening and the bank of producers watching us and filming us all reach under their chairs, pull out Sainsbury's bags, throw stale loaves of bread at us and order us to fight over the stale bread. Um, I don't know if you've ever actually seen your soul leave your body and walk out of the room and never look back, um, but I experienced that. So I should have really known then that casting calls were not to be trusted. Um, so what I want to do today is just to give you a little insight into the weird and wonderful world of casting calls. Um, now, casting calls come in all various manner of guises. So some are brilliant. So payment, bottle of gin, travel card, 20 quid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, some say supermodels won't get out of bed for less than 10 grand. That's my equivalent. Um, some will be ridiculous. Uh, please note, the frog does not need contemporary dance skills. <laughs> of, of course. Uh, some are just insulting. Would prefer an actor who is not thin. Perfect role for a feminist. <laughs> yep, yep. Damn us women and all that misogyny pie we keep eating. <laughs> and then some are just plain awful. Um, the actress would need an easy access skirt with leggings underneath. So the skirt could be lifted up and it would look convincingly like she was being taken from behind. Must consent to have fake vomit thrown on her. Nice, isn't it? Um, but what I love most about casting calls is how the filmmakers really try to make sure that their actors are put at ease when they're applying for work. So, you know, you get things like, um, must be willing to have a condom filled with condensed milk thrown at her face. Oh, my parents are so pleased with what I do for a job. Uh, and then there's the props you might be using. So, um, the egg shoots from her vagina and directly into the doctor's mouth. <laughs> no, I have no idea why. And then there's the type of roles you'll be playing. So, uh, looking for someone to impersonate my mother when me and my mum can't meet up. <laughs> so I bet you're... Th no, see, you're thinking that's sweet. No, it's creepy. It's fucking creepy. <laughs> that's not why I went to drama school. But the thing is, people forget that casting calls are job adverts. So where other people might look for jobs and, you know, they'll get perks like, you know, free use of the on-site gym, you know, pension scheme, free dental care... We get things like, I can't afford to pay you. I will, however, buy you a Subway sandwich. 
Let's just be pleased that's the only six inch he's offering. <laughs> no pay, but I will write a blog post about you. Yay. <laughs> and um, unpaid, but some actresses may get a free bikini. <laughs> some actresses may get a free bikini. They can't even promise a bikini. And so I'll just close tonight with uh, just a few little highlights from what I've seen. Uh, so uh, one was, uh, you'll be playing the role of a rubber duck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 30 grand for drama school, please, yeah. <laughs> she gets a couple of lines, a light-hearted orgy scene, and then gets kicked through a window. <laughs> yeah. I love explaining to my nan what I do for a living. <laughs> this is one of my favorites. A dildo possessed by Hitler's soul wreaks havoc in a small Nebraskan sex shop. <laughs> That is a genuine casting call. <laughs> it's all genuine, I promise. This is horrible. She must be enough of a visual aesthetic to be believably the prey of a stalker. Aww. Yeah, yeah. One, the structuring of that casting call is fucking awful. And two, yeah. Lucy will appear limp as Ned has carnal barbaric sex with her corpse. Yeah, yeah. Ned was already cast. I'm sensing Ned was the filmmaker. <laughs> and uh, one of my absolute favourites, and I think this is actually one for something that's in Edinburgh. <laughs> Please only apply if you're of slender build, as performance space is limited. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, maybe... Yeah, I've been doing... I've been getting these and collecting them and I have a whole tumbler full of them um, if you want to look it's casting call whoa just put that in somewhere and it'll find it um, but I've started to think that maybe it's me that's the problem maybe this is why I'm resting maybe I'm looking at these too negatively maybe it's me that's the problem maybe if I was happy just to work for a bottle of gin and a travel card maybe I'd be working maybe I'll be Benedict Cumberbatch who knows uh, I wouldn't I'm not Mel um, uh, but that's the joy of casting calls, is that they can tell you where you're going wrong as well. So I'm just going to leave you with one of my absolute favourites. Thank you for being so lovely. There's something unnerving about her. Maybe she's just read too many books. Thank you very much. <laughs> Miss L, everybody! Did you say I'm all right for time? Okay. Right, so, I mean... Something that I've been thinking about uh, in Edinburgh this year is how hard it is to sell the idea of tragedy to people. It's a very interesting thing. Like, I think this is a really great night and I think it's a really important night because it means that we can talk about things that we don't normally talk about. Uh, but people don't think that they like tragedy. They hear the word tragedy. You say free tragedy and you think that'll be a laugh and then they'll listen and then have a conversation. But no, they go, oh, tragedy, don't like that. The thing is, we do all like tragedy. Like, we watch EastEnders and The X Factor, right? We, 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 we like sad songs. We do like tragedy. But what people don't know is that they like tragedy. They, don't, they haven't made peace with the fact that they are not always positive people. And, you know, I've been doing this solo show uh, here in The Fringe, and that is a very... And then uh, uh, 
cry until you laugh, laugh until you cry, everyone. Uh, tragedy and comedy are very, very close together. But yes, um, so yeah, I'm doing this solo show every day and it's not had necessarily really big audiences, but it has had really engaged audiences. It's had a audiences of men who are coming to find out other, about other men who are also having problems with being a man in society and like people coming on their own and, 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 and wanting and reaching out for this idea of like tragedy and talking about these sad things that we don't talk about and looking about looking at the hard things that the men do and you know and it's not just about men really there are some pretty horrible things that women do included in the show too uh, just for equal opportunity's sake um but um but yeah and and it's been really teaching me how important it is that we look at tragedy and how valuable it is when people do come and look at tragedy and share that experience together because that's the part of tragedy that is important to me it's communal watching of tragedy and then we have catharsis together we get to feel things together we get to know that we are not alone and that sadness is is something we all feel and all experience and that death is something that comes to all of us and that is very important things to be thinking about and so it's frustrating to me that I've got this amazing show that I can't really easily sell uh, on the streets of Edinburgh, at least. And, you know, to be honest, in general, it's hard. You, sell, you tell people at a party you do stand-up tragedy, they're like, oh, right, sad things. Uh. And, you know, that's not what it is. So what I'd like to ask you to do as a sort of special ad-lib uh, kind of ask today is to not just go out and tell people about this show and let's have more audience for the rest of this fringe and, and in London and all of that stuff, but just go out and tell people that it's okay to like tragedy, that it's okay to feel sad and that we can actually think about these things and guess what? We'll enjoy them, right? It's enjoyable. It's not just like, oh, it's worthy and we'll learn and it'll be therapeutic. No, there is enjoyment in tragedy as well as sadness and catharsis. And like, if you could just go out and be my ambassadors for tragedy, I would really, really love that. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah, you can kind of probably start the, the, the outro music now, half. But yeah, um, so yeah, I mean, like, as I said at the beginning, you know, it's free to come in, it's free to go out. Really don't pay any money if you can't afford it. But if you can afford to pay and help us to make some tragedy, uh, please do so uh, on your way out. And we won't be ashamed or embarrassed if you give us paper money. Although we are wise to this one pound note uh, thing in Edinburgh. And if you want to put loads, just put one pound notes in and troll me to troll me for to death later on. And I'll uh, look in the back and go, oh, oh, it's loads of money. Oh, no, it's just uh, five one pound notes. So, yeah, there you go. So pick and choose wisely which note you give me. Trolling me is OK. It's OK to kind of laugh at our poverty. And it's also OK to give if you can. Uh, yes, tell people about the show. Uh, if you want to put a review on the Ed Fringe website, it's pretty much pointless now. But please do anyway. Um, and thank you for coming. Thanks for having the tragedy the tragedy is now over Could everybody take their glasses out when they leave? We like tragedy, but not literal, actual tragedy in the room. Just a no, no glasses broken, thank you. It's time to go. It's time to go.